Welcome to the podcast of Midtown Church OKC, a church of the Nazarene. We are a spiritual community of hope and transformation that lives the way of Jesus. We want to develop real relationships and have real conversations, so we would love to hear from you. Find information about our worship services, email a pastor, follow our blog, sign up for our newsletter, and find out how to be a part of our community by visiting our website, midtownchurchokc.org. Lord God, on this first Epiphany Sunday, we remember the story of the Magi and the very first Epiphany. You spoke to them in the language that they understood and the stars in the sky. And you opened the curtain to yourself and you revealed good and true and beautiful things to them in ways that they could understand. And their courageous obedience to your revelation led them on an incredible journey to a faraway land to worship a baby, a toddler, born to a blue-collar dad and an illiterate mom, living in a tiny house far away from anything that looked royal at all. And here these men worshiped. And they gave expensive gifts. And to anyone looking in on this scene, these men looked crazy. And yet today, thousands of years later, we admire their obedience and their courage. We admire their faith that would honor a God who was not even their own or a God who had not been their own before this. And we ask humbly that you would allow us to be courageous and obedient as they have been. We ask that you would give us the kinds of signs and wonders that are in our own language, not just English or Spanish or any other spoken language, but the language of our hearts and minds. We ask that in this season, even in this worship service, we would be astonished by who you are and by the time and care you take to show us who you are. And we ask that because of what we see in you, we would not be able to leave here the same as when we came in. We ask that you would change us. We are ready for transformation. Astonish us with your presence, with your goodness, and give us the courage to respond in obedience when we see you. This is what we ask. In the name and the spirit of Jesus Christ, amen. As you've heard, we are in the season that we call Epiphany. Most people, most Christian people, don't even acknowledge the season of Epiphany. We know about the season of Christmas. We know about the season of Easter. We may even know about the season of Lent. 
But uh, Epiphany doesn't get the commercialization that these other seasons do. It doesn't get the, it doesn't get the play time, and I suppose that is a good thing. On this first Sunday, after the Epiphany of our Lord, traditionally the church has said this night is called, or this day is called, the Baptism of our Lord. And you can read about the baptism of our Lord Jesus Christ in, uh, in the Gospels. Specifically, the, litur- the liturgical text comes out of the Gospel of Mark chapter 1 this evening. But I want to look at uh, another text that comes out of the liturgical reading that comes out of Acts chapter 19. But before we turn our Bibles to Acts chapter 19, I want to say a couple things about the season of Epiphany. The season of Epiphany, as we've said, is a season of astonishment, a season of surprise, a season of wonder, a season of delight. But this season, what I'd like to do is I would like to call it, this year I'd like to call it the season of desire. And all from, uh, during this whole season, I want you to think about these questions, if I could, if you could. And that is, what is it that you really desire? I mean, truly desire. What is it that you want from your life? What is it, what is it that you want from, for your family? What is it that you want for your friends? What kind of life do you hope for? Writer and professor, philosopher, theologian James K. A. Smith says that what makes us uniquely human is this, is that human beings live towards that which we desire. We are creatures that are capable of desire and love. Now, desire is a powerful thing. It impacts every single area of our life. It impacts the amount of time we spend doing something. It impacts the effort that we put into our education or our vocation or how we raise our children or how we spend our recreational free time and even how we worship with one another. In short, we could say it this way, that, that we practice becoming what we love. And Epiphany is this season by which we are invited to reimagine our desires. It's the season to be embraced by the God that embodies true and good desire. And this God, through the love of his son, Jesus of Nazareth, wants to capture us with his love for his purposes. And it's in this season we're reminded that God wants to lead us into a new kind of living where we have a place to belong, where we can be known by others and we can know others in an authentic way, where we could be our true selves, to be, uh, to be loved just as we are. And, that, and, and we, in this season, maybe perhaps in that kind of a place among those kinds of people, we can discover that yes, even though I am broken and I am a failure, that I have value and even a future. We find that in Epiphany, this season of delight, that you and I are God's delight, that we're loved, that we're embraced, that we're cared for, And when we discover this, it fills us with delight. And this new kind of delightful way of living is called discipleship. I want to invite you to turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 19. I've got some friends who have Bibles. I'm going to be reading out of the New Living Translation. And if you do not have a Bible, just hold your hand up and somebody will bring you one. If you don't know where Acts chapter 19 is, you can just look in the table of contents of that Bible. If you don't own a Bible, you can have it. If you just need to borrow one, you can borrow one. 
and just leave it on your seat. Somebody will pick it up after our service. But I'd like to invite you to stand as we honor the reading of God's word. Acts chapter 19, uh, we're going to read verse 1 through 7. So hear the word of the Lord from uh, the writer Luke to us this evening. While Apollos was still in Corinth, Paul traveled through the interior regions until he reached Ephesus on the coast where he found several believers. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed, he asked them? And no, they replied, we haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Then what baptism did you experience, he asked. And they replied, the baptism of John. Paul said, John's baptism called for repentance from sin, but John himself told the people to believe in the one who would come later, meaning Jesus. As soon as they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in other languages and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. This is the word of God for the people of God. And let us say together, Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So this story from Acts, Acts is the history book of the New Testament, is the first one that we read on this, on this first Sunday in the season of Epiphany. It tells the story of St. Paul who made a stop in a town called Ephesus where he ran into several people that called themselves disciples, or in this version they called themselves the believers, and when you read the scriptures, it seems like he asks a really weird question. He says to them, tell me when you received the Holy Spirit. That kind of seems like a strange question that we wouldn't necessarily ask one another today. But really, it's just an old school way of saying, tell me your story. How is it that, you know, God and his delight has impacted you with delight through the Holy Spirit? Tell me your story about how God has changed you. Now, when we started this church, we wanted to make telling stories a regular practice. Every week, we have a story told. Later on, I will tell you a story. But every week, we tell a story. People need places to tell their stories. And our stories help us to identify with one another in new and fresh ways. And, and I'm always surprised how people are impacted when they hear the stories of others. Well, after the story is done, usually on a Sunday evening, we all lean back and we'll ask this question, wow, how did that happen? Well, Christian theology tells us that we can't, we can't uh, the Christian theology tells us that it was by God's work or by the Holy Spirit that somebody's life was transformed. The Holy Spirit is invisible. We can't see her with our eyes. But when somebody tells a story whereby Jesus has impacted their life, all of a sudden we can see it, the work of the Holy Spirit in their life. So Paul asked this group of believers, he went to them and he said, tell me your story. Give us your story told. But what's amazing in this text is that these people had no idea what Paul was talking about. So Paul scratched his head. Said, I, th I thought you were baptized. To which they said, we were. And still confused, he said, oh, well, okay, well, um, into whose name were you baptized? And they replied, John's, of course. Now, I may be taking some liberties here with this text, but I believe that this text tells us something that we need to be very careful of. 
into whose name have you been baptized? That's a really important question. Now, the two movements that we see in the scriptures, the movements of John the Baptist, who was the messenger, and Jesus of Nazareth, who was the Messiah, were seen by some as being one movement. People saw that as one and the same. In fact, those that Paul meets call themselves disciples. But like Inigo Montoya in The Princess Bride, Paul says, I, I don't think it means what you think it means. They, they were baptized in the name of John. So in their minds, it was done. Jesus' name, John's baptism, same thing, one and the same. Tomato, tomato, potato, potato. You know, it's six one way, half dozen the other. But Paul says it's not the same thing. And I'd agree with Paul. I would like to argue that every single person has been immersed, baptized into the name of something. And that something is usually connected, directly connected to that which, we, which they desire. Let me give you an example. A nine-year-old girl decides to practice dieting because she's been immersed baptized in a culture in the name of the triune God of beauty, sex, and celebrity. You know what I'm getting at. A 45-year-old man that practices working 75 hours a week to maintain mortgages on homes and loans on boats and debts on cars just to impress people that he doesn't know very well. He's been baptized, immersed into a movement, into the work of a God that he thinks is a God of security, but instead he finds out that it's actually the God of heart disease, high cholesterol, and early death. We become, James K.A. Smith says, what we desire. We become what we love. We immerse ourselves in that way. We are baptized in that way. But what Paul thinks and what the church has thought and what I'm beginning to believe is that the way of Jesus is uniquely and ultimately different. It's a different alternative way of living and to think otherwise is a dangerous thing. Like the disciples in Acts who thought that the movements of John and Jesus were one and the same. So people here now today are mistaken if they think that they're being baptized in the name of, the, in G, in the name of Jesus is, is being baptized into any other way besides his way. To be baptized in the name of Jesus is to be baptized into something that is entirely different, wholly different, utterly different, alternatively different than being baptized into any other thing. But what begins to happen, and the real danger for us is like what happens to the disciples in this passage, and that is things get cloudy, and we get lost in the shadows. I think this is why Jesus says all the way through the Gospels, open your ears, open your eyes, because this can get messy. A worship pastor that I know recently told me that while she was at her church, a board member, one of the largest givers at their, at their church, a big-time business guy with a lot of money, got into her face and he said to her, church is like a business. And you, as a pastor, are a salesperson. And I, as the parishioner, am a customer. 
and I do not like what you are selling. Into what name was he baptized? Was he baptized in the name of Jesus or some other God? Another pastor in Florida that I know has been advocating for refugees. He's, he's been threatened for housing foreigners and nearly a third of his congregation has walked out because he's attempted to be an advocate to a neighbor. Into what name have those people been baptized? In the name of Jesus or some other God? So we need to admit it, at the most, the baptism waters are muddy, and at the least, they are murky. And the danger comes when we believe that the movement of Jesus is the same as that of patriotism, or nationalism, or individualism, or prosperity, or consumerism, or towing a certain party line. We are baptized into something alternatively different. And just like those in Acts who were shielded from a true understanding of what baptism in the Spirit is, we need to be careful as well that we are not shielded. Our, our Christian stories, they don't have as much punch as they used to. Even our Christian seasons have been shaded with something that is sort of Christian, but not exactly Christian. Now there are new reasons for the seasons, and new reasons have been attached to these seasons of the, that, we observe, that we observe. Now, if Epiphany as a season has been almost forgotten, but at least it hasn't been tainted yet. But Christmas, let's take Christmas from, for example, the story of Christmas. It's no longer a geopolitical cosmic story that changed the world. It's a story of consumerism and margins, and profits. Lent isn't a story of an innocent man who was slaughtered by the very people he loves under the authority of an oppressive dictator. It's a month for weight loss. No longer is Easter about the hope of resurrection and the promise to us that the worst thing is never the last thing. It's a family day. And it's got just enough of theological beef that now the Jewish Messiah who has set us free because he has done this, we can now do whatever we want. So we eat ham just like God intended. As human beings, we are being formed. We are formed by stories and the stories we tell. And the stories that we tell shape our desires, and we become what we desire. The formation of our being has a direct correlation to the kinds of stories that we tell. And it has a direct correlation to the sorts of baptism waters that we have been immersed into, and to, into whose name we have been baptized. Because we have not been clear about whose name we have been baptized into, all of the sharp edges of the gospel have been rubbed off. All the sharp edges have been sanded off of our Christian story. And in the end, it's no wonder that we, like those believers in Acts 19, say, Holy Spirit? What is a Holy Spirit? I don't think it means what you think it means. The baptism. Baptism itself. The practice of baptism, when we immerse people in water, 
is a recapturing of the story. And the change that happens in the life of an individual when they're baptized is a sign for everyone about what's coming. Some think baptism in the name of Jesus is simply a ritual, a a pious practice, and it is, but it's not just that. From the first century until today, both the church and the state saw baptism as a political move. It was a declaration that Jesus is Lord over all of the principalities and powers of this world and all of the principalities and the powers of the world beyond. It was like those who were immersed in baptism water said he is Lord over institutions and images and the figures of darkness and evil. Baptism was a sign to Pharaoh and Nero and Hitler and Hussein and even Trump that it was a way for God to get in the face of those kinds of leaders and say, this is is not going to be the way it's going to be anymore. I have decided to reconcile the whole world to myself, this world that gives me great delight, and I am going to do it through the new leader whose name is Jesus. Baptism means that there is a new polis, a new people, a new political system, and they have emerged by the power of the Holy Spirit to tell the story right. This group of people are called the church, and they follow the ways of this new king because they desire, they love his new kingdom come. They can imagine it. And the baptized ones decide that they will resist all other gods, all other political realities that call for their worship and their allegiance. I I love what Aaron Howard says. He says, the reign of Christ is the only true lasting political reality. The baptized ones understand this. Let me be clear if I could, and it's not popular. But this is what I know baptism is. It is a political resistance And it begins with the practice of truth-telling. And those who are in Acts 19, the disciples, were all of the sudden, in their baptism, capable of seeing and understanding the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit filled them, they were able to speak the truth. They were able to, by the power of the Holy Spirit, speak up for those who could not be spoken up for, who could not talk for themselves. The text tells us that their language even changed. They were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they were empowered to say together, we are an immersed new people, and we speak with courage and love on behalf of those that bring delight to God and for whom Jesus died. We now belong to a new family, they said. We are now the children of God, the church, a people who are rich and satisfied, a people who have now a new political way called peace, reconciliation, and love. And we remember that in our baptism as a practice, that that all we do is antithetical to the practices of this world. And we invite others into our baptism waters so that we might say together, the way the world does it, well, we're not going to do it that way anymore. I think God is delighted by this. Being baptized into the name of Jesus is a singular baptism. 
It's not murky. It's not muddy. It doesn't go with any other baptism. It's clear. And it completely deconstructs what we know and absolutely disrupts the status quo. Several years ago, when I was a youth pastor, our students were impacted by a call to minister. They decided to minister to the downcast and the broken and the poor, and they recognized that the, uh, one, of, uh, one of the only AIDS hospices in our area happened to be just down the street, just a mile down the road from our church. So every Wednesday night after youth group, they would head out and they would play games with the people who were there in the AIDS hospice. These people were trapped there. And I don't know if you have ever had the feeling of trapped, but I'll tell you what it is. It feels like white cinder block walls, cold linoleum floors, the aroma of Lysol, and all, all other kinds of cleaners to protect against germs but don't quite cover up the smell from sick human bodies. That's what trapped feels like. And one day, one, on one of the visits, one of our students introduced this man named Jeff to Jesus. She was like a sophomore in high school. And although he, Jeff wasn't dying of AIDS, he had contracted hepatitis C due to his drug use, and the AIDS hospice was the only place in town that would take him. Jeff had grown up Methodist, and he said he wanted to be baptized before he died. He had deep, deep regrets about the life that he had lived, and he testified to the forgiveness of Jesus in his life, and he decided to willingly give his life to the Lord. It was a miracle. And Jeff asked me to do his baptism. So one day I went to meet with him and I explained the meaning of the sacraments as I understood them and that they were a work of grace. And in the sacraments, like the Lord's Supper and baptism, God does something for us that we are unable to do for ourselves. We built a small service order and I walked him through that short order that we used and then we set a date and then he called to cancel it. He had gotten sick. So for nearly two months, Jeff was in and out of the hospital due to this disease that he had contracted. He would become sick, recover, we'd set a new date, then sickness would take over again, flu and strep, complications with the hepatitis, recovery. This was the cycle, and for two months, the cycle went on. So one week, we decided it looked like he was going to be okay. We set a date. It was going to be a Wednesday night after youth group. And uh, that was going to be the day in which we were going to baptize Jeff. And several students were going to go with me to be a part of the service. But just a few hours before we went, a call came in. A nurse said, Jeff's kidneys are shutting down. He's not going to make it through the night. So I rushed over there to the hospice, and there I saw him, a man bloated, drooling, lying on a bed, his legs and his feet and his tongue swollen, and I watched as what was once this life of potential broken down and empty. And I watched speechless as I saw this machine breathe for him. He was in this semi-coma, and one of our students, when I walked in, was sitting there talking to him, holding his hand. Nobody from Jeff's family was there. They had made it known a long time ago that they wanted nothing to do with him. Jeff was estranged from his wife and his children. Nobody wanted him. The only people that were there were just a couple of students from our youth group. 
The nurses told me while I was standing there in the door that he could hear me, but he couldn't respond. And I saw for the first time what it meant to be completely and utterly alone, even alone for your, from yourself if that can happen. And I was struck with fear. I tried to imagine what it would be like to be trapped from yourself and within yourself, not to be able to see or talk to anybody, not to be able to move the fact that Jeff could even hear felt to me like it was a curse. He knew all that was happening around him, but he couldn't respond. It was like, it was like he couldn't move. As the fear overcame me, I began to think about what it would feel like to be utterly alone, even from yourself, and I could barely stand the thought. I was so scared for him. Jeff was there, and he was alone. And then, I, I don't know how to explain it. But in a moment, in a supernatural way, the Holy Spirit entered the room. Jeff was filled with the Holy Spirit. And so was I. It was in an instant. In an instant, Jeff was not alone. I dipped my hand into the cup and I sprinkled the baptism waters on Jeff, knowing that this was his last request. And I said these words out loud. Robert Jefferson, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then while putting the mark of the cross on his forehead, I said, now receive the grace and healing of our Lord Jesus Christ. And may the power of the Holy Spirit work within you, Jeff, that being born through water and the Spirit, you may be a faithful witness of Jesus Christ. And within that moment, I realized that we were being swept up into the very presence of God in Christ. And in that moment, Jeff was captured by Jesus himself. And I could see it. There it was. There was the one who delights and even the worst one among us. And this is the new reality. No principality could control it. No power could reign over it. Death could not even stop it. We were brothers and sisters with him in that room. Jeff became our brother. Grace swallowed all of us like a cloud. Grace it's the same thing that we find in the sacrament that we come to and partake in every single week. Grace found in these sacraments, in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper and the sacrament of baptism are what sweep us up into the care and the presence of Jesus himself. And this grace is so mysterious, so wonderful, so unlike anything we have ever experienced that we find ourselves captured delighted by it, and even shaped by it, so that even to the point like Jeff, we realize that we are now in the delight of God, and we are never again alone. So standing in that room, I recognized the gift that I was being given. In that room, I learned that I've been called, invited, to stand in the fellowship of the saints, this new political system that looks like a family. I've stood, I get to stand in the baptism waters of the martyrs who themselves have stood toe-to-toe -to -toe with evil as it made its way through their lives 
And I've been called like them in the midst of this dark and present age to speak and to act words of grace and offer hope to those who find themselves conquered and alone who are even without themselves. And to whose name are you baptized? As a pastor, I have this growing concern that we cannot discern into whose name we are baptized. And I would argue that, that this church, this, this, can be, this is the church's fault. Sometimes we have rubbed the rough edges off. Sometimes we have not uh, told the gospel in a faithful way because it is striking. It is in our face. It knocks our socks off. So we must practice baptism. We must remember our own baptism. We, we must immerse people, dunk, pour, sprinkle people, literally in water, rather than have them just make personal and private decisions for Jesus. Because following Jesus is no private matter. And the water that soaks us is also evident of the spirit that fills us. Thanks be to God. St. Paul reminded us, if our communion servers would help us, St. Paul reminded his churches and reminds us that you should not stop meeting together. But you should remember that on the night before he was betrayed by those he came to save, that Jesus hosted a dinner for his friends. Jesus himself was baptized by John. And this baptism was a definitive statement to John and everyone else around, every other person that could hear. The voice of heaven came and said, this is my son. You should listen to him. So we listen and hear these words tonight. Come, eat at my table. You, my friends, are my delight. Come sit with me. Come eat with me and come share with me in this new way of living. This is a table that is set by a king, and he, he intends to establish a new kind of kingdom so that we might say, things the way they've been done are not going to be done this way anymore. This new king has made space for people, even the worst among us, and he calls us friends. And he does so by serving us. We remember that on the night before he was betrayed by those he came to save, that he held up the bread and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. And whenever you gather and whenever you eat it together, I want you to remember me. And then in the same way, after supper, he held up the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And whenever you drink this, I want you to do so in affectionate remembrance of me. There is no other world leader on the planet today or ever in history that sets a table for us. This, my friends, is a table for us, his friends. And by coming to this table, we recognize that God and Jesus is making space for us and that he is creating a new way of living. He is saying to you, you are my delight. So this table is Jesus' table, and it's open to all who are open to this good grace in your own life. You are welcome.
I want to let you know that our bread is gluten-free and our wine is non-alcoholic so that everyone who wants to come can come. But when you come, I want you to come down our center aisle. Come with your hands cupped, ready to receive that which is good and that which comes from God. As I say to you every single week, we do not take communion at this church. We receive it because it is a gift. Come to one of these servers. Listen to what they have to say. Take it into your heart. Then dip the bread into the cup and eat it. If for any reason you're unable to come down our aisle, my friend Paul will come and serve you. But if you'd allow me, let me pray. Lord, when you broke the bread and you held up the cup, you prayed. You blessed these elements, very ordinary elements, bread, wine, we know water been used to transform the world forever. As we come to this table, we ask that you would do that for and in through us. This is our prayer and our prayer together. May we know when we come to this table into whose name we are baptized so that there is no question and the waters are neither muddy nor murky that we understand with singular clarity this is what we hope for. And we pray these things in the name of the triune God.